Well, Christ Church, I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the Gospel of Mark, uh, the Gospel of Mark, and please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Uh, this evening uh, is going to be uh, a general introduction and overview to the Gospel uh, of Mark, and uh, we're going to read uh, this evening uh, Mark 1.1 and Mark 1.14 and 15. Please hear the Word of God. The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And then verse 14. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Amen. Let us pray. Our loving Father, we thank you for the four Gospels, and especially this evening, we thank you for the Gospel of Mark, for this story of Jesus, for this inspired biography, as it were, to teach us of Christ. But Lord, we thank you that this is no ordinary word, but the living word, the inspired word, the authoritative word, the life-giving word by your Spirit. And we ask, Lord, that as we begin this somewhat lengthy journey through the gospel of Mark, that you would work mightily through this gospel of God. For the kingdom of God is at hand when this gospel is preached. And we pray, Lord, that you would build your kingdom through this series, that you would help your servant as I preach, and that you would give us all ears to hear and eyes to see the truth of the gospel, and the glory of Christ crucified and risen for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Be seated. Like many of you, I love biography. In many ways, biographies have shaped uh, my life and uh, have made me who I am uh, today. Uh, when others ask me, uh, what books uh, have made an impact in my life, I am often turning uh, to different biographies that I have read. Some of my favorite biographers include uh, Ian Murray, uh, who is a writer on church history. Uh, there's Andrew Roberts, who has written uh, great volumes on Napoleon and, and Winston Churchill. Uh, David McCullough and Joseph Ellis, who are biographers of our American founders. I know some of you are familiar with these these authors, they, they provide inspiring and engaging accounts of historical figures who have impacted the world and, and left a significant legacy, people we can learn from, both in their strengths and in their weaknesses. This gospel of Mark that is before us this evening is a kind of biography, informing us about the life and ministry of Jesus Christ, but the gospel of Mark is very different than other biographies, of course. It's different than your average biography, for it is a divinely inspired account of the life, ministry, and work of Jesus Christ. It is special. It is God's special revelation. The book of Mark is the proclamation of the life and redemptive work of Jesus Christ, and it is precisely the truth of Christ found in these pages that have led billions of people 
to saving faith in him. Remember Paul's words in Romans chapter 1. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it, that is the gospel, is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. For in it, the righteousness, the saving righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, just as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. This is the gospel. Look at what it says in Mark 1 and verse 15. Jesus said, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. He came proclaiming, it says in verse 14, the gospel of God. The book of Mark is the gospel of God. And uh, an ordinary biography on on Churchill or, or on Luther or on Calvin Uh, will have an impact, it will help to shape you, you'll learn some things, but there's no inherent power in those words on the page. But here, there is power, because the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. And so we come to this text with that kind of expectation. Why? Why are we embarking on this long study of the book of Mark? I'm assuming you know it's going to be long. We are embarking on this study because in it we are learning of Christ. We are getting to know Christ better. For some, they're maybe getting to know Christ for the first time. In the book of Mark, we find truth that leads to salvation by grace through faith in Him. If you want to know Jesus, don't go to the library and pick up a random book on world religions. If you want to know Jesus, don't go to uh, the Christian bookstore and pick out the book that has the nicest, shiniest cover with the most provocative title. If you want to know Jesus, don't ask your philosophy professor. And don't seek uh, an answer from your unchurched friends over coffee No, go to the source, go to the scriptures, go to the gospels, go to the book of Mark. For here we learn of Christ and we learn of the good news of the gospel. Some time ago, I came across an interesting quote from a German classical scholar named Gunther Zuntz. You can figure out where he's from. Gunther Zuntz who, although very knowledgeable in the literature of the ancient Roman Empire, had very little knowledge of the Bible. Thus, he was able to read the book of Mark as an adult with a freshness that many are incapable of in our own context. After reading Mark's gospel, Zuntz said he had, quote, a strong impression that something very important was being put forward here with a superior purpose and concentration throughout the book. The style and content of the story arouse a feeling of otherness. Telling that this is not a history like other histories, not a biography like other biographies, but a development of the actions, sayings, and suffering of a higher being on his way through this anxious world of human beings and demons, end quote. And so as we come to this book, which is 
holy other, uh, which is this way, uh, unbeknownst to uh, uh, Dr. Zuntz here, because it is inspired by God, because it is holy. Uh, but as we come to it, let us come with prayerful expectation as to what God will do in our own hearts and in the hearts of one another. And uh, let me encourage you, uh, Christ Church, to make it a part, if it's not already, of your prayer time, of your family worship, asking God to work through the very means that he has promised to use in our lives to grow us and humble us and disciple us and lead us to Christ week after week, which is the preaching of the word. Pray for the preaching in the book of Romans. Pray for the preaching in the book of Mark with, with hopeful and prayerful expectation of what, of what God will do in us and through us. Well, this evening we come, as we come to commence our series in Mark, we will start uh, again, with this introductory overview, looking uh, from uh, the view of 30,000 feet before we get into uh, the forest of the individual texts, we will look at the backdrop of this divine drama and help us, this will help us to get a, uh, the big picture and the major themes uh, of this book. The Gospel of Mark is the oldest of the four Gospels. In fact, most of what is found in Mark's Gospel account is found in some form in the other two synoptic Gospels. The other two synoptic Gospels are uh, Matthew and Luke. Of course, when you read the book of John, you see how very different it is than uh, the other three Gospels. Mark, the Gospel of Mark, may be divided up into 105 sections. And of these 105 sections, 93 occur in Matthew and 81 in Luke. Therefore, uh, most scholars believe that uh, Mark was highly useful to both Matthew and Luke in the inspired writing of their own Gospels. But what do we know about the author? What do we know about the author of this Gospel? Well, though it is anonymously written... There is great consensus throughout church history that this book is written by John Mark. Indeed, there are several 2nd and 3rd century early church documents that attribute this gospel to Mark. We learn from early church fathers such as Eusebius and Origen and Clement of Alexandria and Tertullian and Irenaeus, Irenaeus rather, and others that the author of this gospel is indeed John Mark. But who was this person? Who is John Mark? What do we know about him? Well, he was a Christian with a Jewish background. And his mother, Mary, owned a large house in which believers from the new Christian community would gather for worship and fellowship. It was John Mark's family home that Peter fled to after he had been miraculously freed from jail by an angel of the Lord. We see that account in Acts chapter 12. It was also John Mark that accompanied his cousin Barnabas and the Apostle Paul on Paul's first missionary journey, Acts 12, 25. You'll remember that Mark traveled with Paul and Barnabas to Cyprus, probably as a young business manager, to assist Paul and Barnabas as they preached in the synagogues. But when they decided to go inland to Asia, you may remember that Mark left to go back to Jerusalem. We see this in Acts 13. Well, the Apostle Paul evidently thought that Mark's departure was irresponsible. He was not pleased. In Acts chapter 15, verses 36 through 40, we learn that when Paul and Barnabas were 
preparing for their second missionary journey, Barnabas wanted to bring Mark with them again, but Paul was not on board with this plan. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Acts chapter 15 and verse 36. Acts chapter 15 and verse 36. Luke reports here in verse 36, quote, And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Uh, just briefly, let me share. This is uh, the biblical strategy for Christian missions. Preach the gospel, make disciples, plant churches, do that again somewhere else, and then come back to those churches to strengthen those churches. This is what Paul and Barnabas were doing. Let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Verse 37. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark. But Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement. Can you imagine that, a sharp disagreement between Christians? There arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Now, what is remarkable and very encouraging about this division and fellowship is that many years later, the Apostle Paul reconciles with Mark. He was even with Paul during an imprisonment in Rome and later served on an important mission to Asia Minor. We read about that in Philemon 24 and Colossians 4.10. And years later than that, Paul, when Paul was imprisoned in Rome a second time, awaiting execution under Nero, he requested to Timothy that he bring Mark to him. Why? Well, 2 Timothy 4.11, because he is very useful to me for ministry. What a wonderful word about Christian growth, about reconciliation. Sometimes there are divisions between believers, but these things can be worked out in time and through prayer and humility. In Mark's life, then, we see this Christian growth. We also must note that it wasn't only Barnabas and Paul that thought highly of Mark, but also Peter. There is an unbroken consensus throughout church history that Mark was the Apostle Peter's closest disciple. That while Peter spent the last years of his life preaching in Rome, Mark was his disciple. That Mark was there with Peter, assisting him in ministry. At the end of Peter's first epistle, he refers to Mark as his son in the faith, 1 Peter 5, 13. So now we know something of the author. What about the occasion? That is, the when and the where of the gospel of Mark. Well, most scholars agree that the gospel, according to Mark, was written in Rome between the years 60 and 70 A.D. By the way, I do uh, want to mention, I forgot to mention earlier, that there is an insert uh, in your bulletin with the outline uh, on here. There are further outlines on the information table out here if you want to pick one up after the service if you don't have one. But there's uh, an outline uh, of the uh, message tonight as well as 
a kind of outline of the book of, of Mark. But Mark was written in Rome between the years 60 and 70 A.D. Now, those of you who are uh, Roman historians, you know that this decade was a tense one uh, for Christians. Uh, during this period, Emperor Nero uh, had unleashed a fiery persecution against Christians in Rome. When we were there just a couple of weeks ago, it was very humbling as we were in the Colosseum and uh, walking by the prison that Paul was in right at the base of where Nero's palace would have been. Uh, Paul would have been his prize uh, prisoner. It was very humbling to think of these early believers who had received Paul's letter uh, uh, to the Roman church and, and, and then later to know that Paul and, and Peter and Mark were ministering in this city under such persecution. But Emperor Nero uh, had, you will, some of you will know, notoriously blamed Christians for the great fire in Rome in A.D. 64, which reportedly destroyed 70% of the city. But it was rumored that Nero himself had ordered the fire to clear space for a new palace. A man who murdered his mother and forced Seneca to commit suicide would certainly be capable of such treachery. The Roman historian Tacitus writes in his annals what occurred in those days, and, and we can read from Tacitus's uh, 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 report that he himself is no fan of Christians, uh, but even seems to have some sympathy with what happened to them. Quote, this is from Tacitus and his annals. Quote, Nero fabricated scapegoats and punished with every refinement the notoriously depraved Christians, as they were popularly called. First, Nero had self-acknowledged Christians arrested. Then, on their information, large numbers of others were condemned. Their deaths were made farcical. Dressed in wild animal skins, they were torn to pieces by dogs or crucified or made into torches to be ignited after dark as substitutes for daylight. Nero provided his gardens for the spectacle and exhibited displays in the circus at which he mingled the crowd uh, despite their guilt as Christians and the ruthless punishment it deserved, the victims were pitied. For it was felt that they were being sacrificed to one man's brutality rather than to national interest. End quote. We think as Christians that we have persecution in our own lives. But it is very, very soft in comparison to what these early Christians endured for the sake of Christ. Many believe this persecution was taking place at the time Mark was writing his gospel, which would explain why so much of the book deals with the topic of suffering, reading and hearing of the suffering of their master, Jesus Christ, had had to go through in order to enter glory was a firm reminder to them that they too would first suffer and then enter glory, would first be humiliated and then be exalted. In Mark 12, excuse me, in Mark 1, 12 and 13, we read of Christ being driven 
by the spirits into the wilderness among the wild beasts. It's interesting when you read this and you hear about the wild beasts in the wilderness that this must have spoken to those Christians who later were thrown to the wild beasts in the Colosseum and elsewhere, knowing that in Christ they would ultimately be safe. Those who would first read or hear the gospel of Mark would know that any suffering that they would have to undergo would not be unfamiliar to their Lord Jesus Christ as they come to the throne of grace looking for help in time of need. The Christians in early Rome were falsely accused. So was Christ. Christians were betrayed by their friends to the government. So was Christ. Persecution was spoken of time and time again by Christ in this gospel. And taking up the cross to follow Christ was not just a a verse to put on a t-shirt or a bumper sticker, as it often is in our own day. It was an ever-present reality to the Christians in Rome and elsewhere in the Roman Empire, who, like Peter, would end up being nailed to a cross. Turn with me to Mark chapter 8. Verses 34 through 38, Mark 8, 34 through 38, which really is a defining text in the gospel of Mark in connection with suffering and discipleship. Mark 8, 34 through 38, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's sake will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world yet forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his life? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. This is no health and wealth gospel. Nowhere in scripture do we learn that if we just have enough faith, that we can have a life of ease. Nowhere in scripture are we called to a life of ease, but rather one of committed, sacrificial discipleship, flowing from a place of thankfulness, flowing from a place of security and joy and assurance of God's love for us in Christ and our response to him of faith. For these first century Christians in Rome, Mark's initial audience, there was no casual kind of half-hearted Christianity. Because of their new nature in Christ, they were willing to stand firm in his grace at all costs. And, And here's the thing, beloved, God calls us to nothing less. What we see in this gospel is a call to radical Christian discipleship. As the world, as the culture comes bearing down upon us, we are to respond with faith, with humility, with love, but also with courage, standing firm in the face of the challenges that Satan will bring. What about the structure of the gospel of Mark? What do we learn about the structure? Well, Earlier, we looked uh, at Mark's close relationship with the Apostle Peter, 
It was probably the case that Mark spent, as I said earlier, a large amount of time with Peter while in Rome. Uh, Mark probably assisted Peter as Peter preached the gospel to, to various Christian groups in Rome. It is probably the case, too, that Mark's gospel is really Peter's gospel, is really Peter's gospel. For there is evidence that Peter gave Mark the words to write down. What are some of these clues? Well, we have historical evidence. Papias, the bishop of the church in Heropolis, recorded something in 140 AD that he had heard from an older man in the faith. By the way, you know, it's interesting when you are around antiquity and you're in a, in a, in a city like Rome. And, uh, you know, I, I grew up in California. Uh, so what's old to me is like an old Macintosh computer from the 80s, you know. Or if you want to get really old, you can go back to the old Spanish missions from the 19th century. And then I move out east, and I come to Charleston. I'm like, wow, this is really old. Charleston, established in 1670. Man, that's really old. And then you go to Lecce, Italy, established in 200 B.C. And you're walking to a restaurant, and you see an old Roman uh, amphitheater. So, so when you read uh, these things, and you see... Uh, the, the arch of, of, uh, of Titus uh, in, in, in the Roman Forum dedicated in 81 A.D., uh, which was commemorating the, the sack of Jerusalem in A.D. 70 and in other parts uh, of the empire, you, you begin to get a perspective on time. And, you know, you think 2,000 years ago, oh, it's so long ago, and it is a long time ago. But then you start walking around edifices, that were around during that time. Peter and Paul and Mark walking through the Roman Forum, preaching the gospel, sharing the gospel, discipling people, being persecuted. Uh, here we are in 140 AD, and this bishop had heard from an older man in the faith this, quote, he wrote, the elder said this also, Mark having become the interpreter of Peter, wrote down accurately whatever he remembered of the things said and done by the Lord, end quote. Then there was an anonymous preface to a manuscript of Mark dated 160. It states that Mark was the interpreter of Peter. After the death of Peter himself, he wrote down this same gospel in the region of Italy, end quote. And then Irenaeus of Lyon who writes, after the death of Peter and Paul, John Mark, the disciple of Peter, also transmitted to us in writing the things preached by Peter. And this leads to the biblical evidence of this, this, this idea that, that Peter is the source behind Mark's writing of this gospel. And it comes from Acts 10. We won't turn there for the sake of time, but Acts 10, 36 through 43, we have a sermon by Peter that interestingly is... Is a, is a veritable outline of the gospel of Mark. If you study Acts 10, 36 through 43, next to the development of the events of Mark, you see tremendous similarity. It follows the outline of the Sermon of Peter very closely. We also see here that, that Mark is an action gospel. It's another clue that Peter had great influence upon Mark's gospel and the way that it was written. And the way that it was written. Mark's gospel is often called the action gospel because of its fast-moving flow of events. 
the historical present tense is used 150 times in this gospel. Jesus comes, Jesus says, Jesus heals, etc. All kinds of miracles, one after another in the gospel of Mark. And then, this is interesting, that Mark uses the word immediately 42 times. 42 times, immediately. In contrast, we have immediately used seven times in Matthew and only one time in Luke. And so when we read the Gospel of Mark, what overcomes us is a sense of Christ's ministry being busy and dangerous, full of meaningful excitement and real suffering as he goes about his ministry to save us from our sins. If you'll look at your outline, if you grabbed one of those earlier, you'll see the outline of the book of Mark. In chapter 1, verses 1 through 13, we have the beginnings of the public ministry of Jesus Christ. Um, secondly, in chapter 1, 14 through chapter 6, 13, in the second section, we have uh, Jesus' ministry in Galilee. And then in chapter 6 through chapter 8, verse 30, we have Christ's withdrawal beyond Galilee. And then in chapter 8 through chapter 10, we have his final journey to Jerusalem, where he sets his face like flint to Jerusalem to go there. And then we have his ministry uh, in Jerusalem, chapter 11 through chapter 13. And then, of course, the passion narrative in chapters 14 and 15, and then the resurrection in chapter 16. Again, following very closely with Peter's sermon in Acts. What about the theology of Mark? What do we learn from Mark in terms of themes? Well, one is the two natures of Christ. Christ was the Son of God and the Son of Man. We see Christ's humanity in a glorious way in the Gospel of Mark. We also see his divinity. He is the God-man. We see, secondly, the coming of the kingdom of God. It is through his coming that we have the fullness of time. All of time is pointing towards the coming of the Messiah, Jesus Christ, and his fulfilling of the covenant of grace, God's purpose for redemption. And so we have the coming of this kingdom, heaven breaking into this world to save wretched sinners. Thirdly, we have the mission of Christ, again, to redeem sinners. And then finally, the call of Christ to radical discipleship, chapter 8, verses 34 through 38 that we read earlier. And so, beloved, as we study this gospel of Mark in subsequent weeks, uh, we come to it recognizing that while it is an account of the life of Jesus, it's so much more than that. It possesses within it inherently the power of God into salvation to everyone who believes. And so make it your prayer that you will Know Jesus better, that you will recognize his loveliness, that you will be reminded of the, uh, the, the, the power of his atoning work for you, of his perfect obedience, of his overcoming temptation for us. Even as Adam failed, even as we failed, Christ did not, and he became that perfect sacrifice for us. Also, as we think about this book as, uh, as we look in this overview, we want to consider the radical discipleship that we are called to, which includes persecution, which includes suffering, which includes falsehood and 
and uh, slander. We must understand the Christian life not as one of ease, but one of sacrifice and commitment. If we do not see this, uh, we will wander. Uh, we will walk away. I think it's fair to say that in many ways the American church has become soft. Uh, we've been more concerned about entertainment than discipleship. And we need to remember that it is only by having strong discipleship and being committed to the means of grace and, and recognizing the gospel in these things and that we are held fast by God and saved by him and kept by him that we will have the, the metal, as it were, to stand firm in the midst of persecution and pressure from the culture. May our conception of the Christian life be changed as we move verse by verse through this glorious gospel of grace. Finally, I want to encourage us all to, to exercise our faith upon Christ, to renew our commitment to exercising our faith upon Christ alone. Let's make it a matter of intentional prayer and meditation to, to abide in him, to live our lives in response to all that he is teaching us in his word. The devil is intentional and active in seeking to break us from Christ and his gospel. But we must purposefully and intentionally exercise our faith upon Christ, teach our children about Christ, look to Christ by faith for our salvation through the means that he has given us that we may mature in our walks with him. How sweet the name that Jesus, uh, how sweet the name of Jesus sounds to a believer's ear. And my prayer that as we walk through this book, the name of Jesus will be sweeter and sweeter, that we will get to know him and that we will recognize him truly as a friend of sinners. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you for this gospel. As we have spent time this evening considering the various backdrops of this book, the facts and uh, the, the author and the structure and the, the occasion of this book, how it is structured and how we are called, Lord, to repent and believe the gospel in response to it and live a life of Christian discipleship. Lord, we, we pray that by your grace and through your spirit, you would empower us for this life of discipleship. Most of all, Lord, we want to give you thanks this evening that you did not leave us to perish in our sins, but sent your Son into the world to proclaim the gospel of God and then to fulfill the gospel of God with his perfect life and substitutionary death, and glorious resurrection from the dead on the third day. Oh, Lord, we thank you for the gift of your son, the gift of eternal life through faith in him. Even now, Lord, as we sing and come to your table, would you feed us upon him by grace through faith. We pray in Jesus' name.